Excited Utterance, the Evidence and Proof Podcast, episode number 28, Bennett Capers, Rape, Truth, and Hearsay. Welcome to Excited Utterance. I'm your host, Ed Chang, from Vanderbilt Law School. Excited Utterance is your podcast for cutting-edge scholarship and developments in the world of evidence. Our goal is to bring a virtual workshop to you every week throughout the academic year. This week, our guest is Bennett Capers. Bennett is the Stanley A. August Professor of Law at Brooklyn Law School. He teaches evidence, criminal procedure, and criminal law, and his writing has covered a broad range within those fields, with an emphasis on sexual assault, policing, and issues of race. Our podcast today features Bennett's new article in the Harvard Journal of Law and Gender, which is entitled Rape, Truth, and Hearsay. In the article, Bennett takes on Federal Rule of Evidence 412, the Rape Shield Rule. He argues that Rape Shield, which is a product of the 1970s, is woefully outdated today. It reflects social mores and values at odds with contemporary beliefs and practices, and is ill-constructed for dealing with the acquaintance rape cases that have emerged since. Rape Shield thus fails to protect victims while simultaneously imposing significant costs on defendants. The question is what we should do with Rape Shield. One option is to scrap the current Rule 412 and rebuild a more effective one. The other is to find a way to reinterpret Rape Shield that avoids some of these problems which is exactly what Bennett proposes to do in his piece. Bennett, welcome to Excited Utterance. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. I think it's fair to say that a major premise of your paper is that not all is well with Rule 412, the Rape Shield Rule. One of your concerns is that it flatly doesn't work, that it ends up being either full of holes or excluding important information. Can you take a minute to elaborate on why you think that is so? Sure. I have several problems with Rule 412. I'm not sure I would go so far to say that we should completely chuck it out or chuck out the sort of idea behind Rule 412, but we should at least have a conversation about some of the numerous problems with it. Obviously, the usual problems that scholars mention is that the catch-all exception under 412 really does catch too much. It's too amorphous. On the other hand, you have prosecutors think it doesn't cover enough. I tend to point to other problems that I see with 412. A couple of those problems I'll just run through very quickly. It seems to me the exception allowing evidence of a victim's sexual history with respect to the defendant is sort of an odd exception to have if we really believe that a victim's prior uh, sexual experience is irrelevant. And if we believe we do now in 2017, that anybody can be raped, even if the person who's accused of raping is a husband or a boyfriend, that exception seems strange. It also seems strange that 412 still seems to allow an inconsistent result. It seems that judges, not uncommonly, will allow in sexual history evidence of the complainant if it serves to sort of benefit the prosecution. So if the prosecution wants to elicit evidence that the complainant was a virgin or the complainant was a lesbian and therefore could impossibly have consented to this heterosexual encounter, then judges seem inclined to let that in. 
Those are sort of some of the concerns at the margins. The larger concerns deal with the expressive message sent by Rule 412 itself, because the expressive message seems to be that sex or sexual history is still something that people should be a little bit ashamed of or embarrassed by, something that needs to be concealed sort of corseted away, and it's rather sex negative rather than sex positive. And then the other concern I have is really one distributional effects, especially along lines of race. So imagine what happens if you're sitting on a jury in a sexual assault case, you see the complainant, and evidence about sexual history of that complainant is completely excluded. How the jurors might interpret that is very likely to turn on how they perceive the complainant, and that might be affected by race. So a white woman, if they're told nothing, the jurors might actually think, okay, she's a good girl because we've heard nothing. Whereas the jurors might have a very different reaction for a Latina or a black woman just because we have such a bizarre history in this country of sort of associating women of color with sexuality. So if they're told nothing about a black female complainant, they might still assume the complete opposite, that she's actually sexually promiscuous. So let me push you first on what I'm going to term for our purposes as this expressive aspect of the rule. Let's assume, arguendo, that you're right, that the rape shield law focuses way too much on chastity rather than autonomy, and it's basically viewing sex as something that needs to be hidden or shoved under the table. But what if I view rape shield on more instrumental grounds, that we want to promote more reporting and prosecution, might that expressive content be worth paying? The victim reporting is still a problem today, and at least anecdotally, it's often because of fear of publicity. Doesn't that then argue in favor of a tighter rape shield rather than a more open one? It may. It really may. So part of my argument is at least we need to have a conversation about this. And it might be if we have that conversation, we're recognizing the cost, we're recognizing the benefits, we're weighing them and we're deciding, you know something, the benefits of rape shield outweigh the cost. But it might be that when we really think this through, the costs are actually higher than we imagined. At the end of the day, we still have this sort of distributional concern I've mentioned, and that seems to be very significant if we're concerned about sort of racial equality and sort of how cases get prosecuted and adjudicated. For me, this message is so troubling. If we really are trying to envision a future in which people are free to have sex without shame or embarrassment, then it seems that sort of the message rape shields currently communicate are always going to be a barrier to getting to that point. Part of my scholarship is trying to imagine, well, how do we get to the point that we want to be? And that's the point where a person, male or female, can engage in sex whenever that person wants to engage in sex without concern that that's going to be used against them in sort of a 412 way, but also in the sense that it won't be sort of like something that they have to hide or be embarrassed about. I wanted to raise another thing that you talk about in your article about why Rape Shield is potentially outdated, which is that there's been a shift to acquaintance rape and that the rule was adopted in a world where acquaintance rape was not the focus. I understand that your proposed solution in the article works hard to work within Rule 412 as it currently stands, and we'll get to that in a moment. But I wanted to get your thoughts in a more unrestricted way on this. If you had carte blanche to completely redraft the rule in light of both 
the new focus on acquaintance rape and on your desire to focus on sexual autonomy rather than traditional norms of chastity, what would the rape shield law look like? Great question, Ed. I have really been on the fence about this. I'm sure you and your listeners are familiar with Harriet Galvin's proposal from maybe 20, 25 years ago, where she suggested that the rape shield rules should be structured more in the manner that rules like 404 and 407, 408, 409, 411 are structured. Sexual history evidence would be inadmissible if offered to show consent or if offered to go to credibility of the complainant, but they may be admissible for some other reason. So if any around the box reason one could think of, they may be admissible subject to 401 and 403. So essentially, if the litigant could come up with an around the box reason that was neither on the issue of consent or credibility, it might be admissible. That would really take care of the phenomenon we have now where you wonder if in a lot of cases there's a reasonable and honest mistake of fact. Because in those cases, the defendant wouldn't be offering the evidence to show that the complainant consented. Far from it, the defendant would probably be saying, oh, I understand now she consented. I'm offering it to show why I honestly and reasonably but mistakenly thought she did. So you're basically suggesting that the problem with 412 is in many ways its original sin, which is that it was structured like Rule 410 and basically a blanket rule with a bunch of exceptions. Blanket rules tend to be over and under inclusive. They don't follow the usual way we think about evidentiary rules, which focus a lot on purpose. And you would want the rape shield law to look like that. I think that would definitely be a better rape shield law. I don't know if it would be perfect, but it would be a step in the right direction. At the end of the day, this is another area where I'm very conflicted and where I go back and forth, because part of me really, at bottom, think we're just in a different time now. So when you think about how younger people respond to allegations of rape, a lot of the concerns raised by 412 don't even have current application. You know, when I speak to my students, for example, about sexual assault, if I mention, oh, suppose you heard evidence that the complainant had had sex before, their eyes glaze over it. They're like, so what? Who hasn't had sex before? Since a lot of those concerns are gone, part of me responds by thinking, gee, I wish we could one day just go back to 401 and 403. I know that sounds rather radical, but I'm hoping one day we reach a point, like 20 years from now, 30 years from now, where we don't even need a special evidence rule for sexual assault cases. Your solution is less radical. You try to produce what I think is a rather elegant reinterpretation of Rule 412 that centers around hearsay and fixes some of the problems. Could you tell us more about that proposal? Sure. So I really came to this way of thinking after teaching uh, Stevens v. Miller for several years. So in Stevens v. Miller, a Seventh Circuit case, it was basically a he said, she said kind of case where she said that a guy she was an acquaintance with came over to her residence and attempted to assault her, threw himself on her. She managed to push him away. He ran off. That's the basis for the attempted rape claim. His version is he came over to her residence and she willingly engaged in sexual intercourse with him until he said during the middle of sex, oh, you like it this way, don't you? My friend Tim Hall told me you did. He also told me you're into partner switching. We should do that sometimes. And she, according to him, responded by throwing him out of the trailer and eventually going to the police 
and accusing him of rape. What the Seventh Circuit ultimately did in its plurality opinion was agree with the trial court and say that the evidence that the defendant wanted to introduce, that he said to her, oh, you like it this way, you're into switching partners, that's what I heard, we should do that sometimes, all of that was sexual history evidence Therefore, it was covered by Rule 412. None of the exceptions applied, and therefore the defendant was barred from admitting it. And it always occurred to me, well, he's really not offering that evidence for the truth. What would happen if we sort of reframed the evidence he wanted to introduce, sort of bracketed Rule 412 for a moment, and just thought the normal questions we would ask. Is it relevant? Is it trustworthy? What would we find out? And if we went through that analysis, I think we would, of course, say it's relevant. Not relevant on the issue of consent, but relevant on his defense about the effect the words had on her. In terms of trustworthiness, we would say, well, there's really no hearsay problem because it's not being offered for the truth of the matter. The last thing he's intending to prove at trial was that she liked sex a certain way or that she was into switching partners because that really wouldn't have any relevance to the case at hand. What he was trying to show was that his words had an effect on her that might have motivated her to become so angry that she falsely accused him of rape. So if we just looked at those two questions, relevancy and trustworthiness, we would say this is fine. And doing that might actually help us sort of think through, well, how should we analyze this under 412? Under 412, it might be useful to think, well, is this really sexual history evidence? Is it really being offered to prove the complainant's sexual history? Or is it being offered for some non-truth reason? And it seems to me that if we thought about 412 as not including in its sort of coverage evidence that's not offered to show that the complainant had a particular sexual history, then we would be better off. So in Stevens v. Miller, for example, the defendant might be permitted to testify as to what he said while he was engaged in intercourse with this woman without offending 412. Of course, the judge would sort of have the authority to analyze the probative value and weigh that against the risk of unfair prejudice. The court could also, assuming the court decides to admit it, give some type of limiting instruction. But this would sort of clear up a lot of the problems, I think, that we have with 412, at least in the circumstances where words are what are at stake and we care less about the truth of the words. Thinking along those lines, it seems that that solution would have a dramatic impact on a lot of cases involve reasonable mistake of fact, where defendants are asserting that they honestly and reasonably believe they had consent based on something they heard either from the complainant herself or from a third party. I was thinking when I was reading your proposal that it actually did share a lot in common, or at least structurally in common, with Harriet Galvin's article, that you are returning Rape Shield to the context where we care a lot about the purpose that you're offering the rule. Is, am I right about that? Yeah, absolutely right. If we go back and think, well, we should really, with any kind of rule, sort of think about, well, okay, why do we have this rule? What's the spirit behind the rule? How do we try to get close to the spirit and make sure that the rule is not over-inclusive? So let me ask you why you think your interpretation is the better one. For example, it seems that your setup where we focus on whether or not the statement is being used for the truth 
creates a lot more uncertainty for victims who either don't understand this technical evidence speak about what is the truth of the matter or simply don't want rumors being offered. And I guess I'm going back in a sense to my earlier comment about, well, there are prices to pay or there are trade-offs to be made in this context. Here, with your interpretation, we don't have a rape shield that is as clean cut as it is under the current interpretation. That's absolutely true. There's more uncertainty. But it's sort of interesting. My background, I was a federal prosecutor. I tend to think of myself as relatively pro-prosecution. And yet at the end of the day, if I have to weigh sort of the concern about embarrassment over an allegation where there might be a stipulation that the allegation isn't even true versus a defendant's entitlement to a fair trial. For me, it's an easy answer. We have to go with the defendant's right to a fair trial. Part of what I'm envisioning, in certain circumstances, the judge could even essentially compel the defendant to stipulate, look, I have no basis to know that this information is true. I'm not saying it's true. I'm not offering it for that purpose. I'm simply offering it for my honest but mistaken belief. And I think complainants these days, especially younger complainants, are probably particularly fine taking the stand and saying, yeah, he said that about me, or A, it's not true, B, it doesn't matter. What I'm saying is I was raped in this circumstance. Maybe this goes back to what I envisioned an ideal future looking like. So an ideal future where we might be able to go back to 401 and 403, I'm hoping we reach a time where even if for some reason sexual history came in for some reason or because it's not offered to prove sexual history under my concept, even if that came in, I'm hoping that we can reach a day where a complainant feels perfectly fine taking the stand and saying, yeah, he came to my trailer and tried to attack me, but he never said those things. He's lying. Or alternatively, he said those things, but that has nothing to do with whether he raped me or not. He raped me. That's why I'm here today. I'm hoping we can get to a point where we're more comfortable with people being honest about sexual activity. Let me ask you a final question, and it's one that I often ask of our guests. Where would you like to see the research in this area go in the future? And in answering here, I'm looking for both a prediction on where the field might go, and maybe in your case it would be toward the Harriet Galvin model of the Rape Shield Law, but also avenues that enterprising students or young scholars might consider for their future work. Wow, another great question, and one that I should be prepared for, having listened to <laughs> this podcast several times, and yet I'm still not sure. I mean, the great thing about sexual assault law is it's so in flux right now. The American Law Institute is in the middle of drafting new model rules for sexual assault, and so many jurisdictions are exploring things like affirmative consent legislation. It may be that within the space of five to 10 years, the whole concept of honest but reasonable mistake will simply disappear because we'd have moved to an area where we're insisting on affirmative consent. There's just so much going on with rape law right now, which means 
rape shield laws are also interesting that I think for a scholar that's interested in this area, the world is that scholar's oyster. Well, Bennett, thanks for the opportunity to explore the rape shield rule and your new and intriguing hearsay-based interpretation of Rule 412. Thanks for taking the time to come on the show. Thanks for having me, Ed. It's pretty standard fare to criticize the way in which Rule 412 is currently constructed. Although the underlying motivation is surely sound, namely the desire to encourage the reporting of sexual assault and to protect the privacy interests of victims, the blanket rule imposed by Rape Shield creates all kinds of problems. Its exceptions are over- and under-inclusive, which prevents defendants from offering an effective defense, while at the same time not protecting victims as much as we might like. The Supreme Court case of Olden v. Kentucky is just one of the many instances in which the Constitution has had to step in to fix the rule. Into this confusion steps Bennett's article, and in the course of its examination of Rule 412, I think it provides two important ideas. First, Rape Shield embodies a problematic expressive message. To quote from his article, quote, By concealing evidence of sexuality, Rape Shields, in effect, encourage jurors to assume that the victim is chaste, or at least a, quote, good girl. Rather than communicating that everyone is entitled to sexual autonomy and agency, Rape Shields, in effect, communicate the normative message that sexuality is something to be concealed, corseted, and locked away. Unquote. On this point, I think Bennett is insightful and undoubtedly right. As I skeptically probed in the interview, however, regardless of how you feel about this message, given current cultural norms, perhaps this expressive message is simply the price we have to pay to get more reporting of sexual assault. Victims don't report because they don't want the publicity. Maybe, as Bennett suggested, we should have this conversation, but I suspect we will still come out the same way. The second important idea in the article is that we can keep the current Rule 412 and simply interpret it in a different way. This new way is still true to its text, but it avoids the traditional problems of overbreath. Bennett proposes that rape shield should bar not all mentions of prior sexual conduct, but only those mentions of prior sexual conduct offered for their truth. This reading would handle cases like Stevens v. Miller, which Bennett discussed, as well as a number of other troubling cases that he details in the article. This interpretation pushes Rape Shield much of the way toward Harriet Galvin's view, but not entirely. For example, I don't think it handles Olden v. Kentucky, since the evidence of cohabitation there was still being offered for its truth. In any event, I think Bennett has done us all a service by injecting some new life into the debate about Rule 412. It wasn't a well-crafted rule to begin with, and in light of social changes over the last 40 years, it may deserve a fresh look. And with that, we come to the end of the spring 2017 season for Excited Utterance. Our goal this year was to give you two 14-week seasons, and so there you have it. 28 podcasts on recent scholarship in evidence and proof. 
I want to thank all of you for tuning in this year and making Excited Utterance a great success. At last count, we had over 800 weekly listeners, a number that exceeds even my wildest dreams. By now, you surely know the credits, but I'd like to take a minute to thank everyone who made this first year of Excited Utterance possible. Alex Nunn, the associate producer and my former student, who has worked tirelessly with me to screen papers and to prepare the interviews. Carson Smith, the production editor and a junior at Vanderbilt, who spent hours doing audio processing. And Kirsten Castle-Greer and the members of the Children's Cello Choir, who let me record them playing Bach's Sonata No. 1 in G major for the theme music many moons ago. Thanks also for financial support from Vanderbilt Law School's Brandstetter Program and the Vanderbilt Institute for Digital Learning. I hope you've enjoyed listening to the podcasts this year as much as I've enjoyed producing them. Excited Utterance will pick up again in the fall of 2017. In the meantime, please spread the word. Tell your friends and colleagues about Excited Utterance. For now, have a wonderful summer. I'm Ed Chang, and I hope you'll join me again in the fall when we take on another new work in the world of evidence and proof. Thank you.